Hello, our wonderful listeners. Thanks for your patience as Landon and I have struggled to keep up with our podcast while living and working in this COVID world. The world is kind of apparently- You sounded like you had had COVID with that hello. Hello. I know. I suddenly thought- Kind of howled. Kind of howled a hello. Kind of hello. Hello there. Anyway. Uh, But the world is kind of currently racing against that spread of COVID and its variants along with our vaccine level. Um, but how, instead of Happy New Year, I know we're a little bit late and we're gonna say Happy New Vaccine. We thought it would be helpful to review vaccines in general and specifically the COVID vaccine, um, particularly as healthcare professionals, cause you need to know this information so that you can kind of help educate the general public that you're serving. Monique, so let's start by reviewing quickly how the body's immune system works Monique, against infections. She's not even listening to me. What did you say? I was trying to cut in. You can tell we're doing this by Zoom because she just starts going and doesn't even listen to me. I was going to ask. What are you saying? I was going to ask. Are you saying there might be some inaccurate information out there about vaccines? There might be. Oh my God! You mean people have an opinion and put it on the internet? exactly and then we never heard of such a thing yeah and they think they're the expert you know facebook experts are very very important out there all Um, right why don't you teach us about vaccines then okay well i'm going to start actually by telling us how our body's immune system works against infections so when bacteria or viruses invade the body they attack the immune system and they multiply The immune system has lots of different tools, several tools to fight this infection, mainly white blood cells like macrophages, B lymphocytes, and T lymphocytes. So your macrophages destroys these germs and leave behind parts of the invading germs called antigens. And the body identifies these antigens as dangerous and they stimulate antibodies to attack them. B lymphocytes produce those antibodies that attack the antigens left by the macrophages. Finally, the T lymphocytes attack cells in the body that have already been infected. The first time the body encounters a, do you know what? Your picture is interfering with my words. (laughs) I can't see it. (laughs) Put your glasses on. No, it's like literally the picture of us is is blocking can you kind of make the picture smaller (laughs) oh there oh my goodness i was guessing what was behind your face many people have tried to guess what's behind my face that's true find an empty void where there should be a brain We, we should be clear that we're doing this on zoom and landon is sharing our um, information online, but because our pictures of the two of us are on the corner, it was blocking the word. So I was making things up. Anyways, so we've talked about the B lymphocytes and now we're talking about the T lymphocytes and they attack cells in the body that have already been infected. The first time the body encounters a germ, it can take several days to make and use all the above tools needed to get over the infection. After the infection, the immune system remembers what it learned. It keeps a few T lymphocytes, which are called memory cells, that go into action quickly if the body encounters the same germ again. When those familiar antigens are detected, the B lymphocytes produce antibodies to attack them. When George Bernard Shaw said that imitation is not 
just the sincerest form of flattery, it's the sincerest form of learning. So vaccines help develop Im immunity by imitating an infection. This type of infection, however, almost never causes illnesses, but it does cause the immune system to produce T lymphocytes and antibodies. Once the imitation infection goes away, the body is left with a supply of memory T lymphocytes as well as B lymphocytes that will remember how to fight that disease in the future. So vaccines are teaching the body how to fight infection. It allows the body to learn what to do when germs enter the body. You know, that sounds pretty simple, but that's basically what it is. But there's lots of different types of vaccines, right, Landon? Yeah, so there's lots of different kinds of vaccines, and we're going to highlight a few of them here. Um, one is a live or what's called an attenuated vaccine, and these vaccines contain a version of the living virus or bacteria, which has been weakened so that it obviously doesn't cause the actual disease, because that would be called getting the disease. But because they're the closest thing to the natural infection, they're really good teachers for the immune system. They can create a strong and long-lasting immune response. Just one or two doses of most live vaccines can give a lifetime of protection against a bacteria, virus, and the disease it causes. Live vaccines, though, also have limitations. Because they contain a small amount of the live virus, we need to be careful with immunocompromised patients, patients with long-term health problems, or organ transplant patients. And so really there's a risk versus benefit discussion that goes on with these patients getting these types of vaccines. They also don't travel well because they are live viruses, so they often uh, require some refrigeration and proper storage. So it can be a challenge in countries with limited access to those sorts of resources for refrigeration. Um, live vaccines are used to present, uh, protect against measles, mumps, rubella, uh, the varicella vaccine, uh, smallpox, and yellow fever are all live vaccines or attenuated vaccines. Um, the second kind is called an inactivated vaccine. So these vaccines are made by inactivating or killing the germ during the process of making the vaccine. In other words, they're using the killed version of the germ that caused the disease. They don't usually provide as strong immunity as live vaccines, which is why you need, may need several doses over time or booster shots in order to get the ongoing immunity. Inactivated vaccines are currently used to protect against hepatitis A, polio, the flu shots, rabies are some of the common ones. The third type of vaccine is a subunit, recombinant, polysaccharide, or conjugate vaccines. And so that's you know, four different kinds of the same concept. And these are vaccines that use specific pieces of the germ. So like a protein, uh, sugar of a capsid, a casing around the germ like a polysaccharide, because these are the only specific parts of the germ, they give a very strong immune response that's targeted to key parts of that bacteria or virus. They're safe to give to everyone, including immunocompromised patients and patients with long-term health problems. One of the limitations is that you need a booster shot to get ongoing protection against those diseases. And these are most of the common ones that we see mostly now. So uh, Haemophilus influenza, B, hepatitis B, uh, human papillomavirus, pertussis, pneumococcal, meningococcal, and shingles vaccines are all one of those four kind of subunit recombinant polysaccharide or conjugate vaccine. The fourth kind is called the toxoid vaccines, and these use a toxin that is made by the bacterial virus that causes a disease. They create immunity to that part of the germ that caused the disease instead of to the germ itself. 
So what that means is the immune response is targeted to the toxin instead of the actual cause of the toxin. So like some other types of vaccines, you might need booster shots to get ongoing protection against the diseases. And the current uh, toxoid vaccine that I'm sure every emergency nurse in their life has given only about 100,000 doses of the tetanus diphtheria vaccine. Um, and it is called the tetanus toxoid uh, vaccine because there we go. It's even in the name. <laughs> so before I move on specifically to why the don't you tell vaccine. Us, why don't you tell us, Monique, are vaccines even important? And is it even my job to care? Exactly. I'm going to get a bit on a soapbox. You know how I get about this stuff. And um, so I'm going to try. I've had a long day at work. I'm on Zoom with a cup of tea. So uh, I'll try not to get too irritable. But we do have to remind all of us as healthcare professionals why vaccination is so important. And I think it is our duty as healthcare professionals to understand the science behind vaccination so we can inform patients about the truth around vaccination. Understandably, vaccine safety gets more public attention than vaccination effectiveness. But research from independent experts have shown that vaccines are far safer than a lot of your therapeutic medications. You would probably get more side effects for the medications that you are taking daily for your diabetes, high blood pressure, and yet you continue to take those medications. And yet, you know, vaccines who have very small, sometimes no side effects, you're not going to take. So let me state the three most important reasons for vaccinations. One, vaccines save lives. Two, vaccine preventable de diseases are still out there. Three, vaccines protect everyone. So let me start with vaccine saving lives. Vaccine has greatly reduced the burden of infectious diseases globally. Only clean water, considered to be a basic human right, performs better. Vaccines have saved more lives in Canada than any other medical intervention in the past 50 years. Before vaccines, many Canadians died from preventable diseases that we can now prevent. Not to mention that vaccines can also prevent diseases that might not be deadly, but could cause pain and long-term health problems. For example, in the early 1900s, before the introduction of the polio vaccine, thousands of Canadians were paralyzed or died from polio. Today, Canada is polio-free. Before in introduction of the Haemophilus influenza type B vaccine in 1988, it was the most common cause of bacterial meningitis among children younger than five years of age in Canada. Every year, about 1,500 cases of Haemophilus influenza meningitis occurred in Canada in children under the age of five. Since that vaccine, those infections have almost disappeared. Amazing. Two, pre vaccine preventable diseases are still out there. Ideally, vaccination programs goal is to eradicate diseases. To date, only smallpox has been eradicated, which has allowed discontinuation of routine smallpox immunizations globally. The next disease targeted for eradication is polio, which is still a global challenge. Although high coverage with oral polio vaccine has eliminated type 2 poliovirus globally, Transmission of types one and three continues in limited areas in a few countries. Diseases such as polio, diphtheria, and measles, which are rarely seen in Canada, are prevalent in other countries. And frankly, any of those diseases are but a plain ride away. 
Without protection from vaccines, these diseases could spread quickly and outbreaks could occur. Let's look at the pertussis epidemic in um, Japan. In 1974 in Japan, rumors began to spread that pertussis vaccination were no longer needed and that the vaccine was not safe. By 1976, so two years later, only one in 10 infants were getting vaccinated. In 1979, so this is like uh, five years later, Japan suffered a major pertussis epidemic with more than 13,000 cases and 41 deaths. In 1981, the government began vaccinating with the pertussis vaccine and the number of pertussis cases dropped again. Measles in Ireland. Ireland saw measles soar from 148 cases in 1999 to 1,200 cases one year later when MMR immunizations rates dropped to 76%. Rates dropped because of unfounded reports that linked the MMR vaccine to autism, which has been disproven. Several children died in this outbreak. Let us digress a little and discuss this MMR vaccine and autism and the irresponsible celebrity experts who denounce immunization as they thought it was a cause of autism. In 1998, a former and now discredited doctor published a paper to suggest a link between the MMR vaccine and autism. The actual paper showed no such link and it was subsequently removed from publication due to ethical violations, financial conflicts, and serious errors in data collection. The doctor was also struck off the General Medical Council. The problem is there was excessive amount of media coverage of the report and these statements caused panic among parents and a fall in vaccination rates, which ultimately resulted in these measles outbreaks. Multiple studies have since been carrying out, studying large number of participants, and there has been no link between the MMR vaccine and autism. Until these diseases are eliminated completely, we need to keep vaccinating against them to protect ourselves and other. I read a great analogy about vaccination and diseases on the website immunizebc.ca. This is what it said. It's just like a boat that has a slow leak. The water is the disease and a bucket for bailing is the vaccine. Before we start bailing out the water or vaccinating, the boat was filled with water, disease. We have been bailing, vaccinating fast and hard and now the boat is almost dry. We could say, good, the boat is dry now so we can throw away the bucket, stop vaccinating and relax. Except the leak hasn't stopped, the disease is still present. Before long, we notice water, disease seeping in, and soon it may be up to the same level as when we started. We need to stop the leak, eliminate the disease, so we need to keep on bailing, vaccinating. I know, I'm getting very agitated. The third reason, vaccines protect everyone. Vaccines don't just protect the people getting vaccinated, they protect everyone around them. The more people in a community who are vaccinated, the harder it is for the disease to spread. If a person infected with the disease comes in contact only with people who are immune, which means that they have been vaccinated, the disease will have little opportunity to spread. This type of protection, uh, protection is called herd immunity. I'm sure you've heard that argument some people make that if most of the people are vaccinated and we have herd immunity, maybe I don't need to be vaccinated. And the I, problem is I, I, like, I like our provincial medical officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who's kind of world famous now because she's so kind. 
she said she doesn't like the term herd immunity. She prefers community immunity, which I think is just the cutest term and way more better, more better. Look at me. I'm obviously not good at words. I think it way better describes what it is. And so I'm going to propose we change it to community immunity, like Dr. Henry says, because it just sounds, it sounds cute. And, and it, it describes and actually, it I like better. the philosophy, right? Because it means that we are a, a community instead of a herd of cows or sheep. It's like we are a community that is trying to make sure we as a community are safe. So I'm sure you've heard that argument some people make that if most of the people are vaccinated and we have community immunity, maybe I don't need to be vaccinated. The problem is if you live in a community that has low immunization rates, that won't work. Also, community immunity doesn't protect against all vaccine preventable deaths. For example, tetanus is a serious disease caused by germs found in dirt, dust, and soil. It doesn't spread from person to person, and over 10% of children and or adults who get tetanus will die, even with the best intensive care. So currently, experts do not yet know what percentage of people would need to get vaccinated to achieve community immunity to COVID-19, which brings us to the next part of our po podcast, where we will focus on the COVID vaccine. I know I'm getting off my soapbox, Landon. You can start talking about COVID now. God, get off your soapbox. I know, I can't help it. It's usually me who gets on them, so. Okay, well, so let's talk about the, the COVID-19 vaccine, which I will be one of those people that just calls it COVID, but appreciate that, yes, it is officially called COVID-19. So the main goal, as we've talked about already, is to teach the immune system what the virus looks like. Once the body's educated, the immune system will vigorously attack the actual virus if it ever enters the body. So viruses contain a core of genes made of DNA or RNA wrapped in a coat of proteins. To make the coat of proteins, the DNA or RNA genes of the virus make messenger RNA. The messenger RNA then makes the proteins. An mRNA of a specific structure makes a protein of a specific structure. It's kind of like a blueprint. So it's basically the plans of how to make either this specific protein or to tell the virus what to do or how to infect people. It's, you know, viruses are, you know, we could get into that debate. Are they actual living things unto themselves? Because uh, they obviously show some form of intelligence. Unlike traditional vaccines, which use a weakened virus or just a critical piece of the virus's protein coat, the, the sort of first wave of uh, COVID vaccines that we've seen are messenger RNA vaccines that give instructions for ourselves to make a harmless piece of the virus, which in this case is the spike protein that I'm sure you have seen in various forms of computer graphics on whatever news channel you've watched while seeing how many cases per day there are in your area. They always have that background with the fancy virus with a spike protein. So the spike protein is found on the surface of the virus that causes COVID. And once the instructions are inside the immune cells, the cells use them to make the protein piece. After the protein piece is made, the cell breaks down the instructions and gets rid of them. So next, the cell displays this protein piece on its surface. Our immune system recognizes that the protein doesn't belong there and begins building an immune response and making antibodies, like what happens in the natural infection against COVID. At the end of the process, our bodies have learned how to protect against future infection. So basically, this mRNA vaccine 
makes the body think that this it replicates this spike protein uh, looking thing and the body goes, oh, I'm, I know that's wrong. I'm going to make a antibody against it. And so when you get the actual one, there you go. Now, this is the first time that we have used an mRNA vaccine mm -hmm. for an illness in humans. So naturally, the court of public opinion would say that this is completely unsafe. The Facebook professionals obviously are telling the world not to get the COVID vaccine because, well, I, I remember hearing something about it's linked to 5G cell phones as well. <laughs> and so, so people with 5G cell phones are going to be able to start telling my brain what to do or something, which I'm actually quite fine with because most days I wake up and I'm not sure what to do. So if someone can just program me into their smartphone, I'm all for it. Or Bill but, Gates is putting a, a some kind of a tracking device in us, a chip. Right. With the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, how about we stick to the real world yes. and debunk some of these myths? So the first one is, and you know, I'll be honest, as a health professional, I think it's reasonable to ask this question. However, you must be equally as reasonable to listen to the answer. And so I absolutely ask this question. The vaccine was developed too quickly and therefore is not safe. We do know in the history of humankind that there have been vaccines that were developed quickly. They were given to people and there were some bad outcomes. Those vaccines obviously are no longer used, but there is a track record. So naturally everyone wants to highlight that. So we know that traditional vaccines work and collectively they have done way more good for humanity than any other medical advance in history. However, growing large amounts of a virus and then weakening the virus takes a lot of time. While there's some skepticism about how fast a vaccine was developed, mRNA vaccine development has actually been an area of research and study for over 30 years. So about 30 years ago, a handful of scientists were exploring how vaccines could be made more safely. And they asked themselves, what if we knew the exact structure of the messenger RNA that makes a critical piece of a virus's protein coat? Making the messenger RNA in the lab in large amounts is literally really easy. And we've, we've seen that in, in them talking about some of these variants. And they're like, yeah, we can just reprogram the vaccine and make a new one. And the time is really to get it out to wherever you are. So it's really easy. If we then inject the mRNA into someone and it travels through the bloodstream, is taken up by the immune system cells, and they start to make the spike protein, would that educate the immune system? And so the concept seems pretty simple but at first, but scientists had to learn how to modify messenger RNA so that it did not obviously produce a violent immune system reaction. Secondly, they had to learn how to encourage the immune system to take up the mRNA and how to coax those cells to make a large amount of the critical piece of protein. And finally, they had to learn how to enclose that messenger RNA inside a small capsule to protect it from being destroyed by the chemicals into, in our blood before it could get into these immune cells. So in all of these trials and studies, they learned that compared to traditional vaccines, mRNA vaccines can actually generate a stronger type of immunity as they stimulate the immune system to make antibodies and the immune system to make killer cells. So that's all theoretical. And we've mapped the, the, all the DNA. We, we know we have the ability to do this very quickly now. So then along came COVID. So they took 30 years of research of researching mRNA vaccines, 
and it brought it to the forefront. And so companies like Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna had built platforms that theoretically they could use to make a vaccine for any infectious disease by simply putting the right messenger RNA sequence in for that disease. So within weeks of identifying the responsible virus, the scientists in China had determined they'd mapped the genome, um, they'd had the structure of all of its genes that make the spike protein, and they shared it globally with the scientists. This allowed scientists to make enough vaccine within weeks to start testing in animals and then people. And just 11 months later, after the discovery of the SARS coronavirus 2 virus, scientists were able to say that the mRNA vaccine is effective and safe for, and ready for widespread immunization. So of note, don't forget that we've studied coronaviruses in the past. And like SARS, the scientists have been able to build on that knowledge. And let's also not forget that there was an emergent need for a vaccine with a ton of money being poured into this vaccine development. And to ignore that would be silly. You know, could we have done this 20 years ago? Yeah, probably if we had poured trillions of dollars into mapping the genome of viruses, mm -hmm. but we just didn't have the technology then. And so now we do. So the fact that there's been so much money poured into this, I think, it needs to be acknowledged because of course that increases the speed that you can develop it. Also, it allowed parallel clinical trials instead of linear development. One of those being financial, but a lot of it being regulatory bodies allowing parallel phases of clinical research to occur at the same time, which is the first time that's really ever happened in looking at those processes. So is it risky? Well, obviously it's more risky than taking three years, but if again, we look at the risk versus benefit, mm -hmm. what benefit are we going to have having a COVID vaccine three years sooner than going through the traditional linear approach to researching these things? And it's important that people understand the research didn't not happen. It just happened in parallel sequence a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So apparently I'm getting on a soapbox. I'm not even reading the notes. I'll be, I'll be honest right now. I'm just <laughs> talking now. Uh, so we should, we should take a moment to appreciate the evolving science and technology and the global cooperation that supported this effort. Oh, look, it's right there. No previous vaccine had been developed in less than four years. I said three, look at that, it's four. Even more benefits to this parallel. I know, it's amazing. And pouring the entire resources of the world into something. Yeah. Another mention that there are countries trying to develop vaccines the traditional way, not using mRNA technology. And due to some of the challenges of storing and delivery of the current messenger RNA vaccines, one of them being refrigeration. The other is they are actually just generally fragile. There have to be other options explored. The mRNA vaccines that need to be refrigerated to minus 80 Fahrenheit, or Celsius are not a practical solution for mm -hmm. many countries in the world. And so obviously traditional vaccines are being explored. And um, you know, I'll be honest, I think that this is probably going to be dated as our February podcast. Um, the reality is today is Monday, March 8th. And it's important that we say that because honestly, the, the vaccines are changing daily, so, uh, mm -hmm. hourly in our province, it seems yeah. lately. And so there are now approved non-messenger RNA vaccines, the Johnson and Johnson, Johnson and Johnson, yeah, and Oxford, AstraZeneca, yeah, are non mRNA vaccines. Actually, I'll have to fast check, fact check the Oxford one. Pretty sure it's not an mRNA one, but the Pfizer and the Moderna ones are messenger RNA vaccines. So again, you're a health professional. Do your own research. Know what's happening at the moment. But 
the long soapbox summary there was these didn't get developed fast. It is old yeah. technology that we just now have the ability to leverage better than we did 30 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Myth and maybe we two. might do another podcast on the non-mRNA uh, vaccines um, next month, maybe. maybe, because there might, as we learn more about them, but we really wanted to talk about the mRNA vaccines because they were the ones that came out first. The other kind of question that a lot of people ask, um, because I just had my nephew saying to me, well, you got both of your shots, Monique, why are you wearing a mask? Is it because you're protecting us from you? And he's exactly right. So a lot of people don't understand, will this vaccine prevent the virus from spreading? Now, this isn't very clear at the moment. After vaccination, your body will make specific antibodies that will circulate within your bloodstream. However, uh, the COVID virus mostly enters our bodies through our respiratory system. And here we have different types of antibodies. Um, it is currently not known how effective the virus the COVID virus antibodies will be in the respiratory system. It means that you won't get sick, but could you still have virus particles in your nose or lungs ready to spread to others? This is why vaccinated people can still test positive for the virus while not getting sick. There was one study done on primates that showed that perhaps the vaccine may lessen the time that you're infected, but again, no clear answer whether you still can spread the virus which is why we need everyone vaccinated and why you should still be wearing masks to decrease the spread. This is a two-pronged approach, vaccinating people so they don't get sick and wearing masks to decrease the spread until enough of us are vaccinated. And I have a, another additional thought to that, that the last thing you want to do is actually get the flu or a common cold right now yeah. because look at the implications. You then need to have a COVID test, even though you're thinking I'm vaccinated, I don't have COVID. Now you need to be tested, then you need to self-isolate and the impact on society and workplaces. It's like, just keep wearing a bloody mask. Exactly. It will be over soon. And you don't actually know if you can still spread it. So good enough. All right. Myth number three or question, can the mRNA vaccine alter my DNA? Uh, no because our DNA is contained in the nucleus of our cells. RNA, the messenger RNA does enter our cells, but it doesn't enter the nucleus. And if everyone wants to go back to first year physiology and watch that whole DNA RNA transcription stuff, you can, I am not going to explain it. <laughs> but RNA is made naturally in our bodies when the cell needs a particular protein, the nucleus of the cell makes a string of RNA, gives it to the rest, puts it into the cytoplasm and the rest of the cell executes the instructions. But RNA doesn't go into the nucleus where the DNA is. So no, they don't talk to each other, which is the whole purpose of RNA. So that the DNA stays in the little house and it just sends the message out through RNA of what it wants the cell to do. It's the little queen in her castle. Exactly. Giving the other thing that people often her. say, yeah, the other thing that a lot of people will say is that I got the vaccine and then I got really, really sick. Okay, so it typically takes a few weeks for the body to produce enough T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes after vaccination. Therefore, it is possible that a person infected with a disease just before or just after vaccination could develop symptoms and get a disease because the vaccine has not had enough time to provide protection. However, the vaccine itself doesn't cause the disease you can have side effects. With the COVID vaccine, the side effects have been pretty mild, like pain at the injection site, 
fever, chills, headache, tiredness. It has been reported that people have more side effects after the second dose. Also that those greater than 55 had less side effects than younger people. Interesting. Hmm. There have been a very few amount of people having an anaphylactic reaction, about one in two in a hundred thousand, about the same as getting a severe reaction to CT scan dye. Let's just be clear about this. Most of these reactions happened within 15 minutes of receiving the vaccine. If you have a history of allergies or allergic reactions, you may be more likely to have an allergic reaction to the COVID-19 vaccine. So if you have had a severe allergic reaction um, it, or to any ingredient to a vaccine, you may be recommended not to receive the vaccine. Similarly, if you've had a previous severe allergic reaction to polyethylene glycol PEG, which is used to encapsulate the MRA in the current vaccines, you should not receive the vaccine. Also, this applies to polysorbite, which is not in the vaccine, but closely related to PEG. PEG can be found in some um, cosmetics, skincare products, laxatives, some processed foods and drinks and other products. You would probably know if you are really uh, severely uh, allergic to PEG. Perfect. Next question, does the vaccine work for the recent variants of which there are now many? Yeah. So early studies, as again, it's March 8th, early studies have stated that the mRNA vaccine is as effective with the variants as they are for the, I don't know, what do you call the non, the normal bland, <laughs> bland COVID-19 virus. Yeah. Um, however, generic virus, however, there are early studies, they are early studies. So we obviously need to be cautious and vigilant, which is another reason that the vaccine still requires us to maintain public health initiatives mm -hmm. like physical distancing, mask wearing, hand washing, because, well, especially with these, the variants are said to be uh, twice, if not more, contagious. And I know where we are, our counts are going up again, and a lot of this is based on the variants um, being so contagious. So mm -hmm. do those things and stop partying, people. You exactly. Can go another, you can go another couple months without having a dinner party. Get a grip. Exactly. So the other question a lot of people have been asking me is if they had SARS and recovered or if they've had COVID-19 and recovered, should they still get vaccinated? So the protection someone gets from having an infection is called natural immunity. And it varies depending on the disease and it varies from person to person. Because this virus is new, we don't know how long the natural immunity might last. Current evidence suggests that getting the virus again reinfection is uncommon in the 90 days after the first infection with the virus. We won't know how long immunity lasts, lasts after vaccination until we have more data on how well COVID-19 vaccines work in real world conditions. So the recommendation at the moment is to get vaccinated, unless of course you currently have symptoms and then you shouldn't get vaccinated. So if you're positive right now, don't get vaccinated. If you have had COVID-19 and you have recovered, you can get vaccinated. Perfect. Uh, so how effective are these vaccines and how long does the immunity last after getting these vaccines? So the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which are the two mRNA vaccines, are about 95% effective in preventing COVID after receiving uh, two doses. Protection beginning about a fortnight. You can tell Monique wrote this part. It's about a fortnight. So for those of you anywhere but in Monique's head, that's 14 days. 
after the first dose uh, is greater than 90%. So just one dose two weeks later, uh, 90%. There are some unknowns, like how long protection lasts. Uh, we know that some vaccines provide lifelong immunity while others such as tetanus only work for about 10 years. We don't know how long the immunity from the COVID vaccines will last, but obviously they're continuing to research that. And I think it's, it's interesting because it, uh, people who are, who I communicate with, who are within not necessarily the healthcare realm, use the change, changing of messaging as a sign of weakness of a lot of this research and mm -hmm. see nobody knows what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, we recently had our, I don't even remember what the actual standard is for the second dose because ours just keeps getting extended. I think it's 28 days. Ours is now up to a hundred days and people are saying, oh, well, you know, see they're running out. They don't know. And I'm, and I keep pointing back to them. I go, but isn't it interesting that it's about a hundred days now since the vaccine came out. And mm -hmm. so they're extending the deadline based on the people who first got it they're checking their blood and saying, well, all those people are still immune. So obviously it lasts to hundred days. This is what normally we would have researched in that four year time span. They would have researched this and known when the immunity starts to drop off. Well, instead of wait, they gave it to a whole bunch of people at first and now they're monitoring those people. So of course we may see that this extension to a second dose actually just goes into oblivion. And in the end they go, oh, I guess you only needed one dose, but when you're these companies who are trying to research this and you get one shot to get this research done, you're going to research what traditionally you think needs to be done. So they research two doses. And in fact, I think it's Pfizer now has started saying, we think you may only ever need one dose, but they have mm -hmm. to go research that, which will take some time. So obviously for now, everyone's saying it's still two doses, but they themselves are going, well, from what we're seeing, we just overdid it on our first research and didn't have time to re-research this. So I, it's important that people get that about these vaccines. We are administering it in the end phase of researching this. And exactly. that is not what we would typically do. But yeah. I'm, I would rather have people start to get immunized when we don't know how long it's going to last because, hey, 100 people with a week of immunity is 100 more people. Yeah. So anyway oh, soapbox but, but you know All what right. the london you kind of said that at the beginning too right that we're instead of doing it the way we traditionally did it where it was very linear and it would take so long because we would do this and then we would follow these people we're doing it parallel so we've done part of it and said yes that's safe yes they get immune let's do it and then taking a section of those people and and doing some parallel research well how long does it last how long is the immunity and that's that's why this is different than any other one and we just have to trust that the reason that we're doing this and how we're changing things is we're learning as we're doing it because we're doing research in parallel as we're vaccinating. So that's important for us to realize. And for those of you who don't understand what Monique was just saying, I wish you could have seen her on video because she was completely talking with her hands. I'm not sure, like if you don't understand what in parallel is, she just gave a very good condition <laughs> with her hands on video, but unfortunately- You know, you're very that. cheeky. You're very cheeky today. All right. so. We really have only scratched the surface on the topic of vaccines all around, and particularly the COVID vaccine. It's important that everyone keep up to date on what is new and scientifically proven. So find valid resources, 
the US CDC or the British Columbia Center for Disease Control as well, Health Canada, the World Health Organization, immunizebc.ca, they're all valid resources to check out. Do not, if, if it says facebook.anything and it's the link you've been sent, please just don't go there, okay? Type, use your fingers and type CDC into your Google machine yourself and go to a reputable resource, not something that claims it is paraphrasing what a reputable resource says. Mm -hmm. So in summary, one, vaccines save lives. Two, vaccine preventable diseases are but a plane ride or car trip away, as I think COVID has proven. <laughs> Three, vaccines protect everyone. Four, all hail the new mRNA technology. While I know that a lot of our attention is on the COVID pandemic, it's going to be very interesting how the future of messenger RNA vaccines are there for other infectious agents like Ebola, Zika, influenza, maybe even cancer cell proteins can also be targeted by messenger RNA. It's very interesting where some of the concepts of RNA telling cells to do something could be taken because they could be used for cancer, don't grow as fast, uh, cystic fibrosis, make this protein. So it's, it's mind boggling. It's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Five, COVID vaccination keeps the recipient from getting sick, but we're not sure if it prevents spread or how long it lasts right now. So wash your hands, keep two meters or six feet apart and wear a mask. And of course, I like being the last word, don't I, Landon? As always. I know. There is one last word, and it's, it's probably a bit of a soapbox for both of us. Understand that in order for us to defeat COVID, it has to be a global initiative. This has to be our long game. And uh, COVAX is the vaccine's uh, pillar of the access to COVID-19 tools um, accelerator. The ACT accelerator is a groundbreaking global collaboration which accelerated the development, production, and equitable access to COVID-19 tests, treatments, and vaccines. It's being, COVAX is co-led by Gavi, which is the Vaccine Alliance, the Coalition for Epidemic uh, Preparedness Innovations, and the World Health Organization. Its aim is to guarantee fair and equitable access for every country in the world. And it's necessary because without it, there's a real risk that the majority of people in the world will go unprotected against COVID. And this would allow the virus and its impact to continue unabated. So, okay, maybe one more final word. Um, you know, we know that there's a lot of interest in COVID vaccines. And at the beginning, we were really looking at how to treat people who had COVID, particularly those who were critically unwell. I, you know, I think, it's just, it's not just about the vaccine and getting us vaccinated. We also have to learn how to look after people who are critically unwell with COVID. And we have learned some things, but there are other research looking at treatment of people who have COVID. And um, I guess what I'm saying, Landon, is perhaps we need to do another podcast on that. Definitely. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely look at that. Um, I've got some feelers out to speak to maybe a clinical pharmacist who's going to look at some of the research looking at how to, how to care for COVID patients who are in your ICU right now. So thank you very much for your patience as, as Landon and I have been a bit inundated in both of our work 
in helping with COVID either in the front line or in um, looking at how to look after the community with COVID. So we haven't been as vigilant about our podcast, but we're here. We haven't gone anywhere. We've both been healthy. No COVID here. So we just want to thank you all very much for your service right now. We know it has been a bit of a long haul. It's been a year for a lot of us. And so there is a light at the end of the tunnel. We just need to stay on course, uh, take care of ourselves, wear a mask, stay distance, wash your hands, and for goodness sakes, get vaccinated. Thank you very much. And we hope to see you or see you at least uh, hear from you soon. Any last words, Landon? Nope, I have none. Okay. So we will talk to you later. Talk to you guys next month. Bye-bye. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.